Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park. We're glad you've uh, gathered with us this Sunday morning. You know, as a church, you know, kind of have three goals as disciples. One is to really build intimacy with God. The way we do that is through Jesus. It's, it's through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that we have intimacy with the Father. And so our first goal is to be with Jesus and then in being with Jesus, what he does, which is good, but it's, it's hard, is he, he messes with us, he cleanses us, he addresses stuff in our life so that we become like Jesus. And in being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, the goal is to live like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. And so as we gather as a church, in worship, we're, we're seeking to be with him, to acknowledge him, to love him, to stir our affections for him so that in doing that, we may hear his word, become like him, and then just simply go out to the world and not ask, you know, what would my politics say I should do or what should my nationality or what should my whatever it is that we do, you know, the isms we have that kind of step over Christ, but rather what would Jesus have me do as I live primarily as a disciple of Christ? And see, part of doing that at Bergen Park Church is we walk through books of the Bible, and sometimes your pastor's crazy, and he picks really crazy hard books like Ecclesiastes, and that's where we are today. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'll tell you, you know, sometimes it seems like Solomon's a, a couple of cups in too deep, that his words, honestly, his words are difficult. They're challenging. In moments, he's in this total despair, and then he comes out of despair into hope, and and he kind of meanders around. And this book is incredibly challenging because, see, what it does is it asks the questions that we avoid. I mean, we go to Netflix to avoid questions, right? We go to entertainment. Uh, we go to running. We go to outside activities. We're going to be skiing pretty soon. We're going to see some leaves popping out. You know, we go to all this stuff so that we avoid the big questions of life. But the preacher, Koheleth, which could be Solomon, he's not going to let us sit there and just kind of be happy and enjoy life. He's going to say, I want you to start asking the hard questions. I love you too much to just let you sit there and enjoy your kind of 70 years, but never reflect on what your life actually means or what you're accomplishing or what God's doing in your life. The book of Ecclesiastes kind of stops us in our tracks and forces us to deal with life on life's terms. So we're going to take a wide swath through Ecclesiastes today. We're going to cover the whole chapter of three into chapter four, but we're not going to read the whole thing because that pretty much would take up all our time. So we're going to start in verse 16, Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 16, and then we're going to go down to chapter four, verse six. And here's the picture of this entire chapter. What Solomon's doing or what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing is looking at this theme of time. You can't beat time. Time wins. Every time. Time is going to run you down, run you out, wear you out. And if you're not aware of time, then you're not living life on life's terms, on the terms that God has given us. And so he's going to start off and say, you're not in control. God is in control. But then in verse 16, he's going to get into a season of time that we all reflect on and we don't like. You know, we're coming to the 20th anniversary, right, Saturday of 9-11. And for many of us that on that day, it was kind of a... It was a Change And some, for some of us, you know, hadn't witnessed the war or being attacked on our own land. It was a, it was a change in how we saw, we saw life. And in, in verse 16, what's going to happen is Solomon's kind of looking at life and he sees a 9-11. He sees injustice. He sees pain. And he's wrapped up in this season. And he's kind of saying, how do you work through injustice in the world 
God, what are you doing? And, and more than that, you know, what's wrong with us? You know, often when people see injustice, they blame God. The writer of Ecclesiastes blames us. <laughs> He's like, man, we are messed up human beings when you look out and you see what we do to each other. So let's jump into that. That's picking up in verse 16. So that's kind of layout. So, so with that, let's jump into it. So he's looking at verse 16, and he's looking out at the world, and he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, in the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God must be testing them, that they may see themselves as but beasts. For what happens to the children of man happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity, all is hevel. All go to one place and all are from the dust and to the dust we're gonna return. And who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than he should enjoy his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter four. And again, I saw all the oppression that is done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is total hevel. It's vanity. It's a striving after the wind. See, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil in a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, would you guide us? Teach us, instruct us wherever we are as we come into this space and as we set aside this time. Spirit of God, move among us. Reveal the truth of who you are and in that space, Lord, help us to wrestle with who we are and how we should respond in a way that fears you, Father, that loves you and seeks to do what you desire. So Father, teach us and guide us in Jesus' name, amen. So I skipped the early part of chapter three because you've probably already heard the song. To everything, you know it, turn. And now, if you're younger, you may not. Do some of you guys not know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's okay, thank you. The birds, I know, what's that, like 70s? Is that 70s? What are we doing here, 70s, 60s? I don't know, I can't, I don't know anything about the birds, but it's, it's the birds. To everything, turn, turn, there is a season, turn, turn, turn. And every a time to, yeah, somebody like, okay, yeah, you probably can't get it when I'm saying it, because I can't sing. But yet, that's that song, and it sounds like this gentle river and stream, you know, there's a season, and it comes in, and, and then there's this season, and it kind of rolls out, and it kind of sounds like this poetic, very, peaceful picture, but it's not. It's not what Solomon's describing. He's describing, 
you know, what's happening in the Northeast. He's describing a torrent of water. The seasons come and you can't stop it. And with every season, when you look at that, and if you look in the early chapter of chapter three, you'll see that one tears down the other. There's a time to plant, but you know what? There's a time to tear it down. There's a time to build a house and then somebody's gonna come along and destroy it. There's a time to broker a peace deal and then some idiot's gonna tick somebody off and there's gonna be war. And so in each one of these seasons, what you see is something happens and then someone comes along and they destroy it. And the question he asks in verse nine is, what's the point? Here I am, I built a business and someone came along and they destroyed my business. Here I am investing in my family and this, this kid down the street's messing up with messing with my kid. What is the point of all our toil if everything that we do just one day is going to disappear? And that's verse nine. He says in verse nine, what gain is there of the worker for his toil? And he goes on, if you look at this in verse 10, I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Some translations, I've seen the burden. And the burden is this reality that these seasons come and go and you don't control them. Now you think you do. That's what he's trying to take the illusion down that we're in control. And he's saying, no, God's in control. But here's the problem with all these seasons of peace and war and love and hate. We're not in control and we can't figure out what in the world God's up to. But we want to. Isn't that right? You look at the, you want to know, why did my child suffer? Why did I lose this job? Why do I have cancer? Why did 9-11 happen? Why do 9-11s happen all across the world every single day and most of us don't even know it? Why? And so that's what he's saying in verses 10 and 11. I've seen the burdens, the busyness. Verse 11, and God yet has made everything beautiful in its time. Doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. It's that God orchestrates all things together. And if we could step back from our moment in time and see what God is doing, it would be beautiful in its time. But from our vantage point, it just looks like suffering and despair. And he says in verse 11, and you can throw those verses up if you got them, Bella. I know Bella is working an awesome job. Thank you, Bella. She's back there. She's getting it done. But verse 11 says, also he has put eternity into man's heart. And notice, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We wanna see the big picture. And God has put eternity in our hearts. Now, what does it mean that he's put eternity in our hearts? It means that there's something of God in us. That's as close as I can get. I think he's referring to being created in the image of God. Because see, the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of the backdrop for it is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's about as far as he gets. The word for God that he uses is the word for God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He's not talking about the covenant God, Yahweh. He's not talking about this Messiah who's gonna come and rescue things. None of that's in his purview. He's just kind of looking at life through the lens of a broken world and he's trying to figure things out and he says, you know what? There's something in me that says I'm permanent, but my seasons say I'm not. There's something in me that says I wanna understand. I wanna grasp what's going on. I want to be in control, but I'm not in control. And there's this deep frustration within him. As he looks out at the world, he can't figure it out. So he says in verse 12, so here's what I've perceived. This is what I've figured out. This is all I can figure out. There's nothing better for them, for us, than to be joyful and do good as long as we live. Because see, this is from the hand of God. Verse 13, also everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is the gift of God to man. We can't control life but we can trust the one who is in control of life. 
And really, that's what Ecclesiastes takes us to. You can either trust yourself, try to maintain this illusion of control, or you can trust the one who controls the seasons of life. Because he says in verse 14, I perceived whatever God does, listen, it's gonna last. It endures forever. Nothing can be added to what God does. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it, and here's why. So that we might fear him. Now, what does that mean? So that we might trust, worship, really so that we might have a proper perspective of who he is, and therefore, I might have a proper perspective of who I am so that when I do marriage and I do life and I do money, I don't do it on Jason's terms. As one who's in control, I do it on God's terms. And in doing things on God's terms, you know what it's gonna bring in? This is where he's gonna go. It's gonna bring in contentment and joy. Even in a world that has seasons of hate and war, if I trust him and rest in him, God will do something in me and through me that's greater than what I could imagine. But here's the problem. Verse 16, ready for this? Because here's where he gets a little depressed. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, have you ever seen this before? In the place of justice where we should find justice, what's there? Someone like me. Because <laughs> we often want to take those people, right? They're not like, I mean, those are the bad people. No, 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 no. In the place of justice, there's, that's us. We're, we're broken. You know, we tend to blame people in positions of power, but they're no different than us. It's just we haven't been privileged to sit in that position of power yet. And so it's easy to criticize, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. I can look at, look at they're doing it. But see, they have been given an authority, they've been given a power that I haven't been tempted with yet. And he's saying, in, where we should find justice, we're finding wickedness, and where we should find righteousness, maybe in the church. You ever seen wickedness in the heart of a pastor? He said, instead of righteousness, there is wickedness there. And he says, man, this just caused my heart to despair. God, you're in charge of the seasons, I get it. You put eternity in our hearts, we wanna figure it out. I know I'm not in control, but when I look out at the world, it's a mess. And realize if this is Solomon, Solomon was a total mess. I mean, if anyone was unjust, I mean, go back and read 1 Kings, dude was totally unjust. 300 concubines is not someone saying yes to being a concubine. Do you know what I mean on that? When you're a slave building temples and things like that, you're a slave. So Solomon was a man who loved God, but he was also sinful, broken, and wicked. And guess what he had? Authority and power. So his sin was a little bit higher than ours just because he was sitting in a position of power. And we haven't had that opportunity to sit in that position of power yet. And so Solomon was just as unjust and just as wicked, and yet he was also a man that loved God. And here he is, or someone's riding through his his vantage point, he's reflecting on life and he's saying, man, life's a mess. And here's, here's kind of why. This is where we're gonna go and I'll illustrate this. The reason life's a mess, you ready for this, where he's gonna take it, is you want two handfuls instead of one. Did you notice that at the end? Go back, look at the, how chapter four ends. That's what he's taking us to. Notice what he saw. He says down in verse, verse five, he says, here's three ways to kind of deal with life. One, you can fold your hands. And what are fold hands good for? Nothing. Verse six, but better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of striving after the wind. You can either have two handfuls and keep filling it, or you can have one handful with peace. What's he talking about? It's about contentment. 
Where does injustice come from? It comes from a heart of discontentment. It comes from a heart of discontentment. I want something, I wanna be in a position of power, I wanna control things, it's not my place. And so what Solomon, what this writer's wrestling with is this picture that in life, the heart of a human being is so discontented that we try to control life and manipulate life and instead of loving God and loving people, we use God and we use people. Now here's a picture of that, ready? Do you know who ego is? Weird story, Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay, I'll bring you in to my world. Guardians of the Galaxy, not one, but two. Now, ego's nuts. I don't know what ego is. Some of you people read comic books. I don't, I just watched the movie and was like, what in the world is this ego thing? But ego was like a brain, did you know this? That became a planet and then wanted to rule the world. You know, that's comic books, right? That's Marvel Universe. So anyways, ego, and and then you know what ego was? He was discontented. No one liked him. (laughs) There were other planets beating him up, and so you know what he wanted is he wanted love. Okay, he was like, okay, kind of like Solomon. Okay, what's next? What's next? I need love. So what did he do? He said, well, I'm gonna rule the world by becoming a man, so he became Kurt Russell, right? Kurt Russell's got that amazing hair and kind of looks like a god, so he kind of fits the part. Anyways, I know, I know, I'm sorry. And Kurt Russell goes out, Ego goes out, and he starts populating these different planets, and and that's where Peter Quill comes in, because Peter Quill is part Ego. And his idea, this idea of Ego, was that he was gonna go out and he was gonna cover the land, and it wasn't just humans that he populated, he populated all sorts of things and kind of left his children in different places so that one day his children would multiply or something and kind of cover the entire world, because he wasn't satisfied. And really, in that, that movie, it's describing the discontentment, really, of the human heart, the human soul. We want to be God. That's what Adam and Eve did. Instead of being wise in God's eyes, they said, no, I'll determine what is good. I'll determine what is bad. I want to be wise in my own eyes. And as a result of that, we were disconnected from God. And this world happened that the writer of Ecclesiastes describing is called a world under the sun, which means a world that's full with brokenness and sin that God's redeeming and yet we have to live in. And he's looking out the world and he's saying, man, we're a lot of egos in here. We wanna be king. We wanna, and it doesn't matter what it takes for us to get there. There's something in the human heart that's never, it's never satisfied. And that's what he's wrestling with. And so watch this. He said, and this gets pretty dark. He says in verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of men, God's testing them. As they look out at the world, he's testing them to see that they are but beasts. When you see injustice, what tends to come out of us is injustice. I don't know if you realize that. You ever see the movie Nobody? Don't watch that movie, it's horrible. But, but what happens in so many of these movies is somebody does something bad to you and what does the character go off and do? <laughs> they annihilate the world. I mean, it's like, because that's what we want. That's what vengeance is. It's not like, okay, you stole a dollar. I'll steal a dollar from you. No, you stole a dollar. Oh, buddy, it is on. I'm taking your 401k, your house. I'm taking it all. And that's what the human heart is. We're not satisfied with just a, a little, right? We don't want one hand. We want two. And so he's saying, when you see injustice in the world, God uses that to say, hey, how are you responding to that injustice? Is it bringing the same thing out? And that's where it takes him in verse 19. He says, for what happens to the children of man happens to the beast. It's the same. One dies and so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast. 
And see, this is Havel, because see, verse 20, all go to the same place. All are from dust, and to dust they'll return. And so he comes to this question, verse 21, and who knows whether the spirit of man goes up or the spirit of the beast goes down to earth. Now, let me explain. He's not talking about heaven and hell, because again, he's writing from the vantage point of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he's just looking at the heart of humanity. And he's saying, what's the difference between me and a jackal or a hyena or a chimpanzee? In the heart of man that I see the same wickedness. Now, he knows we're creating the image of God because remember he said there's eternity in the heart of men? So he knows, Psalm 8, God created us a little lower than the heavenly beings yet crowned us with glory and honor. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, writer of Ecclesiastes isn't answering those questions. He's just looking at life and saying, we are so unjust, we mistreat each other. What's the difference between us and an animal? Because see, when we see injustice in the world, what often comes out of us is the same kind of injustice. But see, what is at the heart of God? Jesus said, when you see an enemy you see someone worthy of love. Is that natural? Not in this heart. This heart is ego. I wanna rule the world. And when somebody does something to me, vengeance comes. The heart of God is to take upon, Jesus on the cross took upon himself our brokenness, our sinfulness, what we had done so that we could have his, his peace. And as Solomon's looking at this picture, his heart is in despair and he says, we're nothing, we're just like animals. Now, now what's, the, what's the solution in this? Part of the solution, and I think it's back in verse 17, he said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter. I've gotta not take justice in my hands, but to know that God is just. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But hey, you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You know what Peter said? Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself. So Jesus knew in this earthly life, he had entrusted himself to the Father. Who are we entrusting ourselves to when we see injustice, brokenness, sin, hurt in the world. Only the spirit of God is gonna convict you to the place to say, don't be like the animal. Rather, be like Christ. Because see, salvation is to love your enemies. We are saved by enemy love. And as Solomon's reflecting on this, he's saying, what's the heart of the matter? We gotta trust that there is a judge who will set things right. And in this life, we may never figure out how it's gonna get there or how the story's gonna go, but we've we've gotta trust him. So he concludes, verse 22, I saw there's nothing better for man that he should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. And who can bring him to see what is after him? Now, I'll tell you, I'll be real honest, this week, this verse was a little unsatisfying. Because really, when you look at the whole picture, he's in this place of hope and despair, hope and despair, hope and despair. So he just said, listen, there's injustice in the world. You can't control it. You can't get your arms around it. You wanna figure it out and you wanna have permanence, but God's in control so what you need to do, just enjoy life. Doesn't that seem a little disconnected? It's like, okay, there's suff- but there's suffering in the world. No, God's gonna take care of it. God's the judge. And so he, on the one hand, he's saying, we've gotta trust the one who's in control and trust that every good gift, because we can't figure it out, and in the end, we're not gonna solve it ultimately. We've gotta trust the one who is, 
who is the, the good judge in all of this, but then in see in chapter four, he starts examining the human heart. And he doesn't just leave us there, hey, don't just ignore what's going on, you know, close your eyes, turn the channel, go to Comedy Central, Netflix, something like that. That's not what he's saying. Notice what happens in, in, verse, in chapter four, verse one, he starts going back to us. And he says, again, I saw all the oppression that's done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed. So they're the oppressors, right? Those are bad people. But notice, and they had no one to comfort them. Now, you may not see yourself as an oppressor, but are you a comforter? What are you doing about it? Who are you comforting? Because see, it's one thing to blame, and that's the solution of most politics, right? Blame. Let me tell you, these guys are really wrong. The other side's, no, 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 they're really wrong. I mean, that's kind of the storyline, isn't it? Writer of Ecclesiastes says, okay, they're the oppressors, but where are the comforters? Where are those that come along? Where are those that actually stand in the place where the injustice is and they, they seek to comfort? And notice, it says they have none. But on the side of the oppressors, that's where the power was. And there was no one to comfort them. And so verse two, I thought the dead who were dead, they're more fortunate than the living. Now, most of us may struggle with that because we haven't seen that level of injustice. See, if this verse doesn't speak to your heart and kind of convict you, you should give thanks to God. Because for most of the world, when they're in places of oppression and injustice, yeah, they're saying, you know, it'd be better not to live this life than to have gone through this. When there are people in positions of power and there's nothing you can do to change the circumstances and no one's speaking out, there's no comforter, he's saying, you know, sometimes it feels like, this is just Solomon kind of reflecting, it feels like it's better to be dead than to go through this. But see, here's the problem. He goes on to say, but better, verse three, than both is he who has not yet been born and seen this evil that's done in the sun. So here's the solution. Verse four, and then I saw all the toil and all the skill in work that comes from man's envy of his neighbor. Why do we work so hard? Why do we do, he's saying at the heart of it, it's envy. That's what's driving us. This is vanity, and here's the problem. A fool, verse five, folds his hands. He doesn't do anything. But better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. What's the solution? The solution is that God has to address the discontentment in the human heart. Now, I wanna go to one place and kind of land this, and that's to take it back to Jesus and the gospel. See, what is it that will ultimately satisfy the human heart, the human condition? You know, in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 13, verse five, the writer of Hebrews is addressing the discontentment in our lives. In Hebrews 13, five, it says this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Now, you could put anything into that space. Keep your life free from the love of Fill in the blank. Instead, be contented with what you have. Now, if that command on its own is left by itself, it's powerless. Okay, just be content. Have you tried that? Be content. Okay, be content. As I'm watching Netflix, as I see these cars driving by, be content. No, he says, be content. Why? Because he's told you, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, who's the speaker there? That's, that's God. God is saying, you are my treasure. I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus on the cross, 
You know, it says in Isaiah that he, he saw the light of life and he was satisfied. That what enabled Jesus to endure the cross is that he placed his treasure in us. And in placing his treasure in us, God was treasuring us. And he called us his chosen possession, a royal priesthood. God treasures us. He values us. And when you realize the degree to which God values us, Jesus went to the cross to take our brokenness upon himself so that we could have his righteousness. We could be accepted through what Christ has done so that we may know the love of God and be satisfied in his love. You know what that does when you find somebody that you've abused, abandoned, mistreated, and yet they pursue you, love you, sacrifice for you, it starts to change the love of the heart, to become like the one who has poured out this magnificent grace into our lives. And that begins to address my discontentment. Because see, discontentment happens when we kind of run life through the grid of me and what I can get. And Ecclesiastes saying, life's not about gain, life's a gift. And you're gonna discover that gift when you discover the depths of God's love and the way that God sees you as a child, that he has pursued you, he has rescued you. And listen, guys, no matter where you are today, he's still pursuing you. He knows what's going on. He knows the addictions. He knows the battles. He knows the internal struggles. And yet he treasures us. And see, to that degree, we understand God's treasuring of us. Then we will begin to find our treasure in him and doing good and loving him. But see, that's not gonna happen unless we celebrate some communion today. And I should have said, because it was in my notes and I didn't do it, that you're supposed to grab the communion elements. I'm so sorry. Kind of blew it. Got got real excited up here. It's okay, it's my third Sunday back from vacation, so I'm still kind of. But Stephen's gonna come up and play some music. So I do, I wanna take take the opportunity. Let's let's just kind of pause. And if you need to grab those elements, I wanna encourage you to go grab them. The first Sunday of the month, we celebrate communion together in unison with one another. And so we wanna take that opportunity in that time to reflect on really what is the gospel, Jesus' broken body, his shed blood that is poured out for us. So as they're grabbing those elements, let's just settle our hearts. Allow the Lord to speak to us, quiet our souls, quiet our minds. And Father, you have said that um, as we come to the communion table, we wanna do so in a worthy manner. And to do it in a worthy manner means to acknowledge you, that you, Father, are righteous, you are good, you are king. You have rescued us through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we did not receive what we deserved. Instead, we have received what Jesus deserves. And you have said to us through the power of the Spirit, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. And hear these words, daughter, son, with you, I am well pleased. And so, Father, enable us to receive these elements as they've been given to us. That on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, he broke it and gave thanks, and he says, take and eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Bergen Park Church, let's receive it in remembrance of him.
in the same way after supper, he, he took a cup. And he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Let us receive it in remembrance of him.